0: Hey, Redeemer. So the last couple of weeks, we've been asking some important questions about the nature of God. What do you think about when you think about God? What does God look like? I want to talk today to us about a really important piece for us as a community, a foundational piece. I want to start today with the three most beautiful words in a sentence that you could ever imagine. God is love. These three words change everything. Absolutely everything. And they form the basis of what I want to talk about today. God is love. I didn't make this up. These are the words that are found in the scriptures. In First John 4, we see these words, God is love. And what this actually means, we need to look a little bit closer, of course. But I want to talk to you about my own story. Growing up in the church, I was presented with different images of God. There was one particular image of God that um, really, really I, I took on. And my, the image of God that I, that, that I grew up with is very different to the one that I now have. Maybe you've been on a journey like this yourself. And the people that taught me growing up, they were really good people and well-intentioned. And they had received theology, passed to them. They had inherited that theology and they passed it on to me. It was complex though. I was taught that God is love but I understood and internalized God as being angry, as being hateful, as being violent. A God that would send me to eternal hell unless I accepted Jesus and pacified his anger. And all of this, all of the actions of this kind of God were justified as being loving. But as I got older, I began to question some of these views and I began to think about what I've been taught and believed. And a lot of it came down to my understanding of scripture. You know, I had seen in the Old Testament, uh, there was a, a depiction of, a, of God as vindictive, someone who would punish his enemies. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus as laying down his life for his enemies. And it seemed to me like God was a split personality. Um, with Jesus saving me, saving us from an angry God of the Old Testament. I, I accepted this growing up, but it was confusing and, and as I got older, um, I had to begin to reconcile these wildly different images of, of God. And my whole understanding of the gospel, of the good news, was based on, on this view of, of Jesus saving me from the wrath of an angry God. Um, all to secure my place in, in heaven. And I've now begun to realize just how deeply reductionistic that that version of the gospel was. And when I grew up, I had these questions. Was God really angry? If so, how is Jesus then God? If we see Jesus as being loving and what did Jesus then come to do to change my status before God? It was all confusing. And even to this day, I I still have internalized angry God that in my imagination, that makes me feel incredibly ashamed or guilty or unworthy if I entertain this view of God. What we've discussed over the past few weeks has attempted to answer questions like this. What is God? Who is God? What is God like? The Apostle Paul, you know, last week we looked at this, shows us that Jesus being the Christ, being the promised Messiah, came to reveal to us the heart of, of God, came to show us God. And until Jesus, no one had seen God. No one really knew and understood God. And over the past two weeks, we've explored those questions and we've began to see that God, as taught by Jesus, is a father, is a, a loving and kind and compassionate father that looks very, very like the heart and the nature and the character of Jesus. In fact, Colossians, as we saw last week, shows us that, tells us, in fact, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. It's in the life and the teaching of Jesus that we begin to see a clearer revelation of God, that we move from, in the Old Testament, like silhouette and shadow, when we look at God into the New Testament, and in Christ, we see the face of God in full technicolor. We see God as this compassionate, benevolent father, and we see God as Christ with a posture of self-sacrificing love. And so from those complex views of, of my, of, in my youth of God, I, I realized that I had this very small story that was for a very small group of saved people. And now I've begun to realize that the Christian story is one of huge depth and breadth that involves the whole of the cosmos and creation and humanity. And at the very center of it are these three words, God is love the ultimate reality in the universe is not death, but love. God is a community of love. We looked at that on Trinity Sunday. He is a community of love. In fact, the energy and the power that sustains everything is one thing and one thing alone, love. Love is the supreme force. Love is the most powerful reality in the universe. and. The Christian story reveals to us the divine God as love. 1 John 4 says it this way, Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. And those who love are born of God and know God. Those who do not love do not know God. Why? For God is love. God is love. I suppose we have to ask the question, what is love? Is love an emotion? Is love a sentimentalism? Is love a philosophical value? Well, the Greek word for love in 1 John 4 is agape. And the Hebrew equivalent of that word is hesed, which means unconditional, honoring, active engagement with a person. Agape is the will to work for the good of someone. It's like loving kindness towards someone. A chapter just before 1 John chapter 3, the writer John, he wants to get the definition of love for us laid out clearly. And he says this, First John three sixteen. this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then he goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Let's look at this verse, two things worth noting. Okay, the first is John breaks the expected logic here or the flow we would imagine that this would go something like, Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for him. But instead, John says that because Jesus loves us, we ought to love other people. And that's the repeated flow of the God story, isn't it? That when we're wondering what is the right way to treat someone else in any given situation, first, we must ask, how has God treated me? There's an outward flow to this love. Second point of this verse is that Jesus is revealed here as love embodied. That Jesus has not just taught us about love in his life, but he is love embodied. And he shows us what love looks like on the cross. That love is, tr- love, love is cross shaped, that love is sacrificial, that love is cruciform, that this love is selfless. This, this whole idea of God as love What sounds like a a child's answer to a Sunday school question is such a profound reality and idea. God loves everyone. God loves loves me. God loves you. God loves the ungodly. God loves sinners like you and me. God loves his enemies. Because God cannot do otherwise. God is love. In the the most well-known Bible verse, God's love for everyone is identified as the preceding motive behind God sending his son. In John three sixteen it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, his love, and this means that every experience we have of God is an expression of love. James 1, 17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights. Now keep in mind, not everything we experience in life comes from God, but everything that does come from God is an experience of love. Sometimes that love will be experienced as an encouraging embrace. Other times, perhaps when, when our lives are pushing back against God's best, maybe that love reveals itself to us like truth or gentle discipline. Our experience of God's love will be determined by whether or not we embrace it or reject it. But ultimately, this is the truth that everything that comes to us from God will always be love. And it doesn't come in a vacuum as we've seen in, in 1 John three sixteen. Jesus is key. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the face of God. Jesus has come to show us God's love, the essence of the Almighty. Brands and you know, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. That's what Brian Zan says. And it's, it's so true that Jesus is love incarnate. Jesus is love in history. Jesus is love in the flesh, walking around, talking, engaging, and showing us the way. In fact, Jesus himself says that if you keep my commands, if we follow Jesus as the way, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. When we have this right understanding of of the view of God, when we see that when we look at the face of Christ, we see the image of God, when we see that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, when we see that Jesus is perfect theology, he is the word of God, he is what God has to say about himself. When we see all of that, it means we can answer questions about God. Does, does God send the storm? No, God as love calms the storm. Does God cause famines or pandemics? No, God feeds the hungry and heals the afflicted. Does God inflict sickness? No, God heals the sick. Does God shun sinners? No, God as love welcomes them. Does God condemn the guilty? No, God as love saves them. Does God blame the afflicted? No, God as love shows them mercy. Does God resent human pleasure? No, God as love turns water to wine. Does God take our side in our hostilities? No, God as love humanizes, always humanizes the other side. Does God kill his enemies? No, God as love forgives his enemies. Does God return vengeance on his mind? No, God as love comes with words of peace. When we see Jesus, we see God and we see God's character. Hans Urs von Balthasar says this, that God is not in the first place, absolute power, but absolute love. You see, one of the problems I had growing up was that the God I was presented with did not look like love. God was presented as an angry and, and wrathful God who needed appeasement, needed me to accept Jesus in order to escape his wrath. What about this view? You have heard this view perhaps preached many times. Why should you believe me today? Well, you shouldn't, in a sense. You should really listen to N.T. Wright. Because N.T. Wright, you know, he's the most prominent Western New Testament scholar alive today, and his work. Has been, his life's work has been to show that this angry and wrathful, violent God, punishing his death, punishing his son to death on a cross, this this atonement theory is actually rooted in, in pagan ideas. That that's not what is going on at the cross at all. Here's how N.T. Wright describes God's love and his his anger as as some depict it. NT Wright says this that. The normal objection to theories of atonement and redemption that focus on divine anger is that they run contrary to the deepest themes of the New Testament. Now, of course, divine anger at human rebellion and particularly the rebellion of the chosen people feature prominently throughout Israel's scriptures and similar notes are struck in the New Testament, not least in the teachings of Jesus himself And any suggestion that sin does not make God angry, that needs to be just treated with disdain. When God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to use this lovely creation as a tennis racket. Here is the difference in many expressions of pagan religion. The humans have to try to pacify the angry deity, but that's not how it happens in Israel's scriptures the biblical promises of redemption have to do with God himself acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. This is the gospel, Redeemer, that that sin has distorted God's good creation in a a way like a violin being used to a tennis racket is just so off. It's It's wrong. It's off purpose. It's broken. It's distorted. God's recreation project God's redemptive project is to make all things new to bring shalom and peace to establish the reign of his kingdom so that all things are as they should be and it all flows from the essence of God's very being like this unshakable love this love that caused God to create this God this love that causes God to want to redeem If we're gonna pull down these statuesque depictions of God as as angry and wrathful and violent, then we need to consult um, N.T. Wright, yes, but we need to consult the great church fathers as well for their verdict. They gave us the doctrines of the Trinity. They gave us the deity of Jesus. They gave us the personhood of the Holy Spirit. They composed the ancient creeds. They formed the foundations of the church's theology. So what do they say? Well, here is one example. St. John Cassian St. John Cassian was a fourth century Christian monk. His theology influenced Celtic spirituality and a lot of Anglican theology. He brought the ideas and practices of Christian monasticism to the medieval West. And when he's speaking about God as if he were angry, Cassian says this. He says, these things cannot without horrible sacrilege be literally understood of him who is declared by the authority of the Holy Scripture to be invisible, ineffable, incomprehensible, inestimable, simple, uncomposite. The disturbance of anger, not to mention wrath, cannot be attributed to that immutable nature without, listen to this, monstrous blasphemy. As, as well as N.T. Wright and St. John Cassian, there's others that have said similar things, like St. John the Damascan, St. Anthony the Great, Athanasius, and the great company of Christianity's founding theologians have all said the same. That the, the angry wrathful God um, depicted so in so much theology, the view that I actually had growing up is a pagan idea. It's a distortion, it's idolatry, and it's, it's, a, it's a monstrous blasphemy. That's such strong language. As I, as I grew up in my faith and my understanding of scriptures, I began a journey and that journey has led me to see what the ancient fathers taught. That that the image of God is angry and violent and and wrathful have more to do with the violence in me and my projections upon God than what God is actually like. These projections, they're all rooted in the opposite of love. They're all rooted in fear. My fear about myself, about others, about the world projected onto God. And that's the kind of God we end up with. And so what I learned in my childhood and my youth was this a version of God and a gospel which was energized by the opposite of love, was energized by fear, a fear-based religion, which is a hallmark of fundamentalism. And it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ As I grew in my faith and my understanding of scriptures, however, I was led to see what the ancient fathers teach, that these images have got so much more to do with with me than what the scriptures say. God looks nothing like this projection in my imagination. Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Archbishop Michael Ramsey says this, that God is Christ-like and in him there is no unChrist likeness at all. God is like God is Christ like, and in Him there is no unChrist likeness at all. This is a profound thought. This will transform our view of God. This will transform our faith. Here is the thing, this morning, Redeemer. God is not an operator in fear. Fear is not of God. Fear is not of God's kingdom. Fear is not of God's way like we see in the parable that Jesus taught of the prodigal son two weeks ago. The son in that story was not fearful of the father. He was ashamed of of his own brokenness and he was worried about the reception that he would receive from the village and perhaps his older brother. But there was something in him that knew that his father loved him and that his father would welcome him home. Speaking about that parable, Hans Urs von Balthasar says this, Once a person learns to read the signs of love and thus to believe it, love leads him into the open field wherein he himself can love. If the prodigal son had not believed that the father's love was already waiting for him, he would not have been able to make the journey home. Even if the father's love welcomes him in a way he would never have dreamed. The decisive thing is that the sinner has heard of a love that could be and really is there for him he is not the one who has to bring himself into line with god god has always already seen in him the loveless sinner a beloved child and has looked upon him and conferred dignity upon him in the light of this love That is a beautiful quote and here is what we can draw out of it that it is love not fear that draws us into the Father's house. It is love, not fear that draws us into the Father's arms. This changes everything, Redeemer. The ultimate revelation of God's love is shown on the cross of Jesus Christ, the manifest example of God's loving kindness, his agape love, his hesed love, his self-sacrificial love for humanity, for you, for me, that we might come into the knowledge of this love and be completely free. Brian Zahn says that to attempt any, uh, to make Christianity uh, less offensive and more palatable by de-emphasizing the cross is a betrayal of Christ himself. He says that to, to enter deep into the mystery of the cross is to encounter the deepest revelation, the greatest revelation of who God is. For under the disguised, for disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. He says this, the cross is many things. It is the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. It's divine solidarity with all human suffering. It's the shaming of the principalities and powers. It's the point from which the Satan is driven out of the world. It's the death by which Christ conquers death. It's the abolition of war and violence. It's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. It's the refinding of the world around an axis of love. It's the enduring model of co-suffering love that we are to follow. It's the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is forgiven. The cross is all of this and so much more. The cross is not the appeasement of an angry and retributive God. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from this kind of angry retributive God. The cross is where Jesus reveals the face of God as a savior. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive us, but the cross is God in Christ, enduring as he forgives us. Here's a plea to those in the community that have a view of God like that, those that are maybe more conservative and you have a view of God, a God that operates in fear. I want to appeal to you to re-explore this. We need a higher Christology. We need a higher view of God. To my progressive friends in the Redeemer community who've walked away or walking away from the faith perhaps, Adhored by the kind of God that some others worship and rightly so. I want to appeal to you, don't let progressive ideas lead you away from Jesus. Keep Jesus as God revealed on the cross of Jesus we see God revealed. Double down on your Christology. Go higher in your view of Christ. Go deeper into the ancient fathers and read about the nature of this God in Christ. Don't walk away from the faith. All of us, All of us need not let the modern enlightenment progressive agenda deconstruct us to the point where we lose Jesus. If we lose Jesus, we lose it all. But let us hold Jesus close as the revelation of God who loved me and who loves you and who loves this world. You know, Galatians 2.20 says this, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The father, the loving father sent Jesus compelled by love for the world. Jesus laid down his life compelled by love and their project, their aim, their redemptive plan by the spirit was to drive the darkness of this world to death so that love could triumph. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. says. The darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. 1 John four eighteen says, perfect love casts out fear. I don't know where you're at this morning with all of this. Maybe this is some new ideas that you've never heard before. Maybe you're wondering why I'm preaching about this, but I just feel like perhaps... This morning, maybe some of you are just living in, in a wilderness of fear-based fundamentalism. Maybe that's where you're at today, where you fear God more than you know God, where a fear of God leads you to, to all kinds of guilt and shame and rejection. And it can also lead to all kinds of religion and self-righteousness that where we try to please that God. The image of Christ on the cross shows us that, God is love in his essence. God loves you and he loves you and he loves me and he loves us all. Not because anything that we have done, not because we've done something spectacular to earn it or to gain it. No, but because he cannot help but love. It's in his nature. And this is such great news. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, the evangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the grace that we breathe every day Remember we talked about the flow earlier because this love doesn't just stop with us, but it flows outward and it should flow outward because this love is the power not only to change us and transform us, but through us transform the world. Love alone is credible and it flows changing us first and out into the world. Jesus was once asked to sum up the teachings of Moses and he went back And he reached into the Hebrew scriptures in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and great commandment. And he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Matthew's version of that, Jesus actually says, on these two, the love of God and the love of neighbor, hang all the law, hang the prophets, everything that Moses wrote, everything in the holy prophets, everything in the scriptures, everything that God has been trying to tell the world. Love God, love your neighbor, and while you're at it, love yourself. You remember uh, Harry and Meghan got uh, married a few years ago and at their wedding, Bishop Michael Curry preached a brilliant sermon and he said this, someone once said that Jesus began the most revolutionary movement in human history, a movement grounded in the unconditional love of God for the world and a movement mandating people to live that love and in so doing to change not only their lives, but the very life of the world itself. I'm talking about power, real power, power to change the world. It's a beautiful quote. This is, this is what Dr. Martin Luther King said about that kind of love. He said that we must discover the power of love the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world for love is the only way. N.T. Wright, he describes the church's call to play its part like this. He says, it is God's covenantal loving kindness, inviting humans to come back into the place of God's purpose. We then, the church are engaged in participating in God's redemptive plan. As a kingdom of priests, we represent God's loving nature among people who've lost their way. We invite those toward engagement with the living God. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and those who love are born of God and know God. And those who do not love, do not know God. Why? for God is love. Come out of the wilderness of fear and fear-based religion. Let us encounter as a community, a God of love that will transform us in and through that love for the sake of the world. Redeemer, God is love. Love is our story in Jesus. Love alone is credible.